Welcome to the Think Podcast, Worldview Wednesdays. I'm Joel. I'm Pastor Rafe. Rafe, can you hear the... Uh, oh, I can hear it. You got it? Uh, I was having a little dance party over here, Joel, while you were getting warmed up over there. Love it, man. So um, we're going to jump right into it today because we're talking about something... We're talking about a major story of the last week, of the last eight days, uh, eight, nine days. But um, we took last week off. We did a rebroadcast. And so we didn't have a chance to talk about it. Although the benefit of that is that now the news cycle has developed and we can um, we can see the issue, the event a little more clearly. And so we can offer some uh, some some more uh, calm and clear commentary from a biblical worldview on what exactly has happened. And so, mm-hmm. of course, I'm talking about the the Beirut explosion on August 4th, 2020, the city of Beirut in Lebanon was rocked by a devastating explosion. And if you've if you've seen the um, the footage of it, it's just it's really incredible. So the the details are continuing to pour in, but the whole world is reeling from the almost indescribable, unbelievable event. So how should Christians who believe that God is both perfectly good and also fully in control of the world respond to this event? On today's Worldview Wednesday, Pastor Rafe and I are going to open up our Bibles and see what God's Word has to say, and we're going to see how a similar event in the time of Jesus can actually serve as a key to unlocking how to deal with tragedies of this magnitude from a biblical worldview. So, uh, Rafe, man, what are your initial thoughts as you saw that uh, the devastation there in Beirut? Yeah, well, a couple of things. So, first of all, I was actually on—I had a week vacation with my family— and, uh, I, you know, Joel, you and I, we, we're constantly scanning the news and listening to everything that comes out and trying to process this and helping our people process it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually, I didn't even know about this until about two days after. That's how off the radar I was uh, from news and all things related to news. And so I actually found out about the a couple of days later. I missed the, uh, the original uh, news sources about it. But I think this conversation today is important. And I'm kind of excited to jump into it because I think in general, uh, the number one question, you and I both do a lot of apologetics, the number one question we often get uh, when you're evangelizing, when you're talking to someone about faith, or even when you're coaching and discipling newer, younger believers in the faith, is around what's historically called the problem of evil. And and I think when it comes to Christianity, uh, people just oftentimes don't know what to do with all different kinds of evil, whether you're talking about moral evil, what a... You know, when someone kills somebody else or does something that breaks God's moral code for humanity, that's moral evil. Or if you're talking about natural evil, and natural evil is uh, when nature itself uh, brings about deathly consequences, uh, earthquakes, tsunamis, storms, you name it, tornadoes. We had our own tornado in Chicago just a couple of days ago, and uh, we're, you know, it was dangerous. And I, th- I think someone might have actually passed away from it up on the north side. Um, and so... Uh, I think Christians in general don't know what to do with this stuff. It's like a category that can't quite pin down. How is God, where is God in the midst of something like this? And if we get it right today, my hope would be that Christians would feel equipped to not just respond to that question, but have a sense of contentment 
um, and uh, a, a sense of understanding of the larger framework of who God is. And I think that, we, that hopefully we can get there. So that's my my brief introduction of being excited for this conversation today with you. Yeah, no, that's 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 good. Good introduction. So um, can we just acknowledge right off the bat that the problem of evil is an existentially very difficult problem? It's it's sometimes people talk about there are multiple problems of evil. There's the logical problem of evil. There's the existential problem of evil. The logical problem problem of evil is purportedly this. Um, God is, it's, it's, um, it's put forward as an inconsistent triad. So God is perfectly good. God is all powerful. And then all knowing is put in there as well. And evil exists. And what they say is that's an inconsistent triad because if God did exist and God were all knowing, all loving, you know, all good, all powerful, then he he wouldn't allow cities to explode. Mm. He wouldn't he wouldn't allow lives to be lost. And you know, Rafe, it, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I've dealt with the problem of evil. I want to get very personal here for a minute. Mm. I've dealt with the logical problem of evil for years, probably eight years, ever since I first heard about it in seminary. The logical problem of evil breaks down when you understand the biblical teaching, not only that God is good, knowing, powerful, um, but also that the, the arc of history, the arc of the universe is, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, the arc of history is long, but it's, it's bent towards justice. Mm. And in the end, goodness does win. And so... For me, the logical problem of evil hasn't held water in a number of years. But the existential problem of evil is a little harder for me. And that's the, the problem of evil that, that it's, it's not a logical quandary. It's based on my own experience and pain. Or really for me, because I've been through exper experiences of pain and suffering in my life. My son has been sick. My wife has been sick. My other son was sick. Um, we've, we've, I've gone through pain in my life, but Rafe, I'm going to tell you something that happened this past week and I don't want us to get too far afield here, but something that happened a couple of days ago found me questioning even for a moment, the goodness of God. And that was, there's this little kid playing on his bike, five years old. And, uh, parents, if your kids are listening to this, I would, I would maybe fast forward the next minute here because this is pretty gruesome. Uh, but this little kid's riding his bike in his front yard. Uh, his two sisters are a little bit older. I think the oldest one was eight. He was riding his bike. And I think that he had crossed over into his neighbor's property, a 25-year-old man. And this 25-year-old man walked up to the boy, pulled out a gun, put the gun against the boy's head, pulled the trigger, executed the boy for setting foot on his property. And Rafe, I hear stories like that. My youngest just turned six. Yeah. I'm sorry. My third born just turned six. My youngest is. <clears throat> I've got kids, those kids' ages. Yeah. I hear a story like that, and I'm I I, I get so filled with anguish, and rage. That that is what makes me think. God, why? Mm. How could you allow that? You know, it's funny, man. Maybe it's just because I've gone through it. But the cancer, the heart failure, that kind of stuff, I've seen God's hand in 
so much. I've seen people being led to Christ because of my son's pain. Mm. I, I would never wish it on anybody else, but I've seen God working. I look at something like this, a, a blatant example of atrocious moral evil. Mm-hmm. And I think, God, where are you now? Where right. are you in that moment? And so I just, I want to acknowledge the fact that people are looking at Beirut, people are looking at the headlines, and they are asking that same question that I'm asking when I read this other headline about the little boy. Where is God? How do we make sense of a universe in which something like this could happen? 300 people could die from an explosion. A little boy could get killed and is, you know, playing out in front of his house. Where is God when these things happen? So what about you? How do you initially, before we jump into yeah. the, the, the worldview piece of this, how do you process this personally? Yeah, you know, so there's a couple of things. And I, I even in my mind right now, I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure I offer a, um, a really important side note to what you just said. But I think the first lead foot for a Christian, I, I, I find myself regularly going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. With the same comfort we've received from Jesus Christ, we now comfort others in their brokenness. That that's such a critical chapter. Actually, second, the whole first. Uh, I just Second Corinthians is a great book, but that first chapter right there, it's saying, look, if you've received grace from Jesus Christ, then your story is such that you've been comforted in your affliction. You've had God step in through the person of Jesus Christ and suffer on your behalf. Literally, He incarnated Himself into suffering. Uh, in order to bring about your comfort. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 1 argues, now you offer that same comfort to others in their brokenness. Here's why I think that's an important verse. When when you get into the work of uh, Christian analysis, worldview analysis, apologetics, it's very easy to operate in the world of the head. And that's an important place to operate. We need Christians to be there. Uh, we need Christians to operate there. You know, it's not the greatest of all virtues, right? We're not going back to the days of Aristotle and thinking that uh, rationality and logic are the uh, the the good life. That's like the right. sweetest, highest life. Uh, but it's important. We need Christians there. However, lead foot. When you hear an article like Beirut, uh, there should be something that causes you to stir and moan. Um, I know, you know, I remember recently it was the Las Vegas shooting. I woke up and this was a couple of years ago now, but I, I woke up and, uh, you know, I was scrolling through the news as I was walking upstairs to see what the headlines were. And I realized and my dad lives in Vegas. And so I realized how big the shooting was that had taken place in Las Vegas a handful of years ago. And I remember falling on my knees and just thinking like, I don't have, I don't have words to express the, the disgust the horror that comes to this. And there's some things that we talk about natural evil and we talk about this, the, the scope of natural evil, how many people can be affected by, by a mistake, by uh, chemicals that were being stored improperly in, a, in the wrong place. It was a mistake. It was human error is what it looks like. Um, and yet all these people devastated, hundreds of thousands of people now homeless. Uh, it should It should make you kind of get into that place of, just being moved to the place of hurting for them. Now, I say that as a, as a first step. And whenever I experience or when I'm pastoring people and I'm thinking, man, they're going through something. There's a bunch of places my heart always goes. Second Corinthians 1. I love Psalm 119. I've spent the last couple of years trying to memorize Psalm 119. It is a long, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but there's a couple of verses in there. One says, my, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. 
Now, I love that language. My soul clings to the dust. It's this expression of the psalmist. You can just imagine someone who is on the verge of uh, dehydration and that their, their tongue is like stuck to their roof of their mouth and all they have is dust. This is a person in near death torment. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. The follower of God in the midst of that expression of suffering finds life in God's word. They, they find a, a, a standing place. They find somewhere to actually root themselves in. So I'm, I'm speaking pastorally, not necessarily uh, in the world of logic and apologetics right now. But I think those are important starting points for Christians to return immediately to God's word and make sure we're, we're framing everything through that lens. Now, real quick, and then we'll come back to this in just a moment. You brought up the the, the tripartite, uh, what would you call it? The, the, the tripartite, you always like yeah, three ways. The, the inconsistent triad. The inconsistent triad. Yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the problems that the atheist world has with the inconsistent triad, this goes back to the writings of Augustine. And what Augustine used to say on this topic is he used to say, you know, it's the Christian that only has one problem to solve. It's the, it's the atheist that has two problems to solve. Because to say, to say we recognize that evil is real and is atrocious and horrible, that's a Christian perspective. We, we, we understand, and we understand that there's parts of this we don't fully understand. The non-Christian has to identify the standard by which they, they say what evil is in the first place and what is good. That's a double thing. You have to then apply, you have to find a right. standard as an atheist whereby you can say this was this was bad this was wrong and this was evil and without god and i'm gonna just keep going for one more second sorry i feel like i'm talking too long here but what augustine used to say is if you don't have the christian god of scripture who identifies what is good what is right and what the purpose and meaning of life is then you have no standard and you don't get the you you can't pull out evil and call anything evil and, you know, the great philosopher, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, there's a great, I was sharing this with you, Joel, there's a great uh, quote of his. And if you're familiar with Nietzsche at all, he, he kind of had this idea that if we're going to be truly atheists, we got to live like atheists. We shouldn't be borrowing and hijacking things that Christianity offers us. This is really incredible. Christianity. You're about to share. This is really right. Christianity offers everything I just said. It offers compassion in the midst of suffering. It, it offers incarnational living. It offers caring for those who are wounded, those who are in poverty, those who are suffering. That's the Christian worldview because we're behaving like Jesus, our, our Savior, and the Bible puts it all together. Nietzsche would say, if you want to be an atheist, but you still believe in compassion for the suffering, you still believe in care for those in, in broken situations, you're not really living according to the atheist worldview. Now, let me read this to you. This is from a great book from Luke Ferry, who's, uh, I think he's French. A philosopher, he wrote this book called The Brief History of Thought. And he writes this about Nietzsche. He says, sometimes his anti-charitable passion or his relish for catastrophe border on delirium. At one point, according to friends, he could not contain his joy when a minor earthquake destroyed some houses in Nice, where he nonetheless liked to spend time. And his dismay that the disaster was not as serious as originally thought. Happily, he learned shortly afterwards. Now, this is just sick and twisted, but this is Nietzsche for you. Happily, he learned shortly afterwards that a major cataclysm had ravaged the island of Java. Writing to his friend Paul Lansky, he wrote, 200,000 wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent! Exclamation point. 
What we need is the total destruction of Nice and all who live there. Now, that's disgusting according to the Christian worldview. It's gruesome. It's it it, it is uh in, we would we would consider that insane that a person could think that. And in fact, Nietzsche did go insane. I mean that maybe that was part of this. But for Nietzsche, when he was writing that, he believed he was being consistent with an atheistic worldview where there is no such there is no standard of right and wrong. There is no standard of love. At the there very least others. at the very least, it's impossible to say he was going against it. Right. Exactly. It's impossible to say he was going against it because there is no first principle within an atheistic worldview that accounts for any kind of dignity or uh, sanctity of human life. Right. Yeah. Right. So, Rafe, it's it's really, um, you know, I appreciate you sharing that that passage from Nietzsche because what we have to understand, the, the first thing we have to realize when we hear about a tragedy like this, I mean, the, 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 maybe it's not the first thing. The first thing is probably uh, how are people doing? You know, how much uh, are, are, are people alive? Are uh, is there is there a way that I can help? Or are there people on the ground? You know, I know the French the French president uh, visited and encouraged the government to to keep going, this the state to keep going because we're actually on the verge of seeing a failed state in Lebanon mm-hmm. because the government resigned. Al Mohler was talking about that on the briefing. And by the way, thank you for tipping me off to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's not the first thing, but the, but one you of can't the do first, a, You can't do a podcast on Christian worldview without having a, a little help from Al Mohler in the background. In your- that's right. That's right. That's right. He's the Don. So we, um, we have to look at these situations and, and, you know, it's just as enlightening, Rafe. If you're looking at things from a worldview perspective, to examine the responses of the world mm-hmm. and how many people were like Nietzsche and going, oh, good, an explosion, wonderful. I hope a lot of people died. No, you'd have to be criminally insane, sociopathic to go that way. Right. But that's because, and Rafe, this is, this is what is affirming to me. The universal reaction to an explosion like this is, oh, no. Right. I hope everyone's okay. I hope, um, I hope there wasn't too great a loss of life. Why? Why do we think that way? Because there's a knee-jerk reaction in us. But um, there's there's something that is wired within us that's even deeper than our programming, our our whatever our worldview is that we've adopted. There's something that's deeper that goes down into what it means to be human, uh, a human person. That when we hear about an explosion like this and a massive loss of life, our first thought is dismay, uh, su- surprise, shock, anguish. We don't like to see the loss of life because we, in our very being, in our heart of hearts, recognize that it's not just us, it's not just we who are important, but all human life has dignity. And that mm. is fully in accordance with the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says in in Genesis one twenty seven, in the image of God he created them male and female, mm-hmm. and there's there's so much in that verse, but at the very least what we get is a robust understanding that human beings are important. We matter. Our lives matter. They have intrinsic dignity. Mm-hmm. Now, this is why it's going to be all the more shocking. I think, Rafe to actually look at scripture and see some of the relevant Bible verses that address similar um, uh, similar events. Because 
it can actually seem like, for example, we're, I, want, I want us to look at uh, Jesus' reaction to a, a similar event that happened in his day. Mm-hmm. It can seem like Jesus is actually callous toward this kind of events. But what we're going to see is that Jesus cares so much more deeply about human persons and about human souls that his reaction is going to cut even through the headlines and the external reality. And he's he's going to cut to the metaphysical and the spiritual reality that is always present. And actually, it's from that spiritual reality that our knee-jerk reaction springs. When we say, oh no, loss of life, oh no, destruction of, 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 right. of human beings, that's coming from a deeper spiritual reality that Jesus hits at. But I know you want to say something here, so go. No, I was going to say, well, I know that uh, this passage is important to you. So let me, let me suggest, let me read it. And I would love you to go first, kind of sharing some of your commentary for us. And you're talking, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about Luke 13, yeah. uh, 1 to 5. Yeah, Am I right? Exactly. exactly. Okay. We're, our brains are connected, even though we're in different rooms, Joel. All right. Ready? So let me, let me read this, the passage Joel's talking about. And then, Joel, you go ahead. You give your first stab. There's so many verses I want to try to touch on today, but I think you're right. This is an important one, uh, the Tower of Siloam. So let me read it. Uh, this is uh, out of Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. There were some present at the very time. Irony, by the way, this was my morning devotion. Isn't that crazy? Okay, we'll keep going. Or part of my morning devotion. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, Joel, give us some commentary. What's Jesus saying in this? He's talking about uh, Pilate mixing blood (laughs) of Galileans with sacrifices. And then he brings up 18 people who were killed when a tower in Siloam fell on them and killed them all. And he asked the question, do you think they were worse offenders than all these others who live in Jerusalem? So walk us through it. What do you take away from it? So the Jamieson Fawcett Brown Bible Commentary points out that Scripture does not actually tell us these stories. Um, they're alluded to, but there's no account of Herod mixing the blood of the, the Galileans with their sacrifices, which sounds like such an atrocious abuse of governmental authority at the very least. I don't know what the backstory is, but it seems like, man, you'd think they would have included that, but they didn't. It's not in scripture. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's some hypothesizing that maybe these were rebels or, um, you know, they were sort of outlaw types who, when they went to, to sacrifice the, uh, you know, under Pilate and, and the governing authorities, uh, they were seized and sort of maybe even in the in the act of sacrificing, they were slain. And you'd think, man, that's that's pretty horrible. That's if there's one time when you should be safe, it's while you're you're worshiping your God. But that's what happened. And and um, what's going on here in the in the in this account in Luke is folks are coming to Jesus and they're asking him because Jesus is a prophetic teacher. And they, they know that whether they believe in him as Lord, they're coming to him and they're asking for his take on this recent headline. Hey, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. You're you're clearly wise. You clearly know scripture. And Rafe, it's, they were kind of asking for his worldview Wednesday take. Mm-hmm. You know, they were asking for, <laughs> hey, 
hey, how do we filter this through the biblical worldview here, Jesus? Right. And maybe they were trying to get him in trouble. Maybe not. Oftentimes people were. But it could just very well be a good faith question. I see no reason to think why it wasn't. And what Jesus does here is he he actually doubles down. Instead of saying, well, you know, the government should never do something like that. This is really atrocious. Look, if you read scripture, scripture has plenty to say about the abuse of governmental authority. Mm-hmm. God is not shy about that. God is no supporter. I just did, you mentioned your devotions, my devotions today. I studied Romans 13 and uh, and 1 Peter uh, 2, I believe, where it talks about submission to government authority. Mm-hmm. So uh, God has nothing good to say about corrupt governments. But Jesus actually takes it a step further, takes it out of the concept merely of governmental authority and even to just calamity in general, catastrophe in general, loss of life in general. And the the example that he uses was the same example that my pastor back in 2001, when the, the towers of, uh, of Manhattan fell down at the World Trade Centers, um, when they fell, my pastor went here, Pastor Lou Diaz, he, he went to, um, to this passage as well. It's, it's very applicable for these large-scale catastrophes, and it's this tower of Siloam that fell. And again, we don't know from Scripture exactly what happened, but, um, but we know a little bit about Siloam. Siloam comes up in Scripture. There was a pool at Siloam, um, and Jesus at one point tells a person that he's healed to go and, and, um, and wash in Siloam. Mm-hmm. The word Siloam means sent, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I believe so. So it's very possible that there were structures around the pool, you know, turrets or uh, just so- something, you know, brick um, brick structures that sort of made it a beautiful courtyard, a beautiful place to go and, and wash and bathe. And one of those towers fell. Mm. And when the tower fell, people died. Lives were lost. And what Jesus does by bringing in this, this story, what he says is, look, loss of life is inevitable. And you want to talk, you want to talk about loss of life in terms of governmental injustice? Okay. Let's talk about loss of life uh, for something that wasn't unjust. How do you process that? Because until you can process that, you can't process really anything. You can't Rafe, bringing it back to our original, um, our current context, in order to understand what happened in Beirut, yeah, it happened as a result of governmental neglect, okay? In order to understand that, you need a context and a framework for understanding death in general. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He goes, what about you? How do you process when someone... uh, when someone dies seemingly by an act of God or an act of forces that are way beyond their control. He says, do you suppose that they were greater sinners? And what Jesus does here, he's not saying that they weren't sinners. He's not saying that they didn't deserve to have some calamity befall them. Right. That's why it seems a little callous. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying, oh, those poor people, they were innocent. Right. What he's saying is, do you suppose there were any greater sinners than anyone else? Yeah. Jesus is not saying, look, sometimes, you know, God God will never punish you through temporal events uh, for your sin. No, that that does happen. Ananias and Sapphira were killed because they lied to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. 
But what he's saying is you shouldn't automatically go to those people are, are sinners and that's why this happened to them because they're greater sinners. What Jesus is actually saying is this, to understand death, you have to understand sin. Sin is in the world and therefore death is the result. That's been true ever since Genesis chapter 3. So how do you understand Siloam? How do you understand the Galileans who died? How do you understand Lebanon? You have to understand that these things happen because death is in the world, because sin is in the world. Romans 5 says, death entered through one man, Adam, and death therefore spread to all men because all sinned. So on the one hand, we recognize that death, pain, and suffering are enemies and they're tragic because human beings have dignity. But the same Bible that tells us that, Rafe, is the same Bible that tells us that we all deserve to perish. And this is where the wake-up call comes in. Sin doesn't belong in this world. Right. Death is an enemy. Not It's not natural. It's not, um, you know, in, the one, in one sense, it's the most natural thing in the world, this side of Genesis 3, but it's not part of God's original creation. Right. So... It feels foreign because it is foreign. But in the same way, that same truth should make us examine our own hearts and realize how foreign our own sin is to this world. And if God were perfectly just, he would be he would have every reason to wipe us out and and he would be fully justified in doing so. Because right. sinners are not natural in this world. So Which by only... the way, he's done through Boom. the flood. <laughs> That's right. He what, did it through the flood. He did it through a flood, and then he, he ultimately kind of does it in a, in a different way through Jesus. And that's kind of what the passage is about that you're referring to. Yes. The, the justice of God uh, is death. The wages of sin is death. What, what does sin earn us? It's death. It's separation from God. But Jesus comes in and steps in on our behalf so that we don't pass underneath the judgment waters of the men of Noah's day. Actually, First Peter talks about that again, comparing baptism to the those who were in Peter's day who suffered and were judged underneath the, the waters day. of the flood. In in, sorry, in Noah's day, underneath the waters of the flood. Jesus takes it on our behalf. Uh, he, he goes underneath the crucifix on our behalf. And what's happening there is he's taking our judgment. The wages of sin is death. That's such an important passage, and we skip over it. But we can't we can't miss it. I think this is Joel, and, and I, I know we want to land on that, and so I don't want to go too deep into that for a moment, but we underestimate the consequences of our sin. Yeah. And it, it, for the Christian, we can never do that. If you have a small view of sin, uh, you're going to have a very small view of the gospel. If you have a big view of sin, you're going to have a very big view of the gospel and a great love of Jesus Christ for what he's rescued you from. I'm thinking of Colossians chapter 1. Let me pull it up real quick. Colossians chapter 1, uh, what is it, verse 14... Uh, verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, speaking about Jesus Christ, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Outside of Christ, if we're living in our sinful reality, we're in a domain of darkness. That's the biblical worldview. And so if we go back to the garden for a second, we go back to the garden, we think of what would what would uh, the garden would have looked like had no sin ever come. Would there be earthquakes to kill? Would there be tsunamis that killed? The answer to that is no. There wouldn't have been. There would have been. It, it would have been a paradise-like nature, and they would have. In my opinion, I follow Abraham Kuyper's tradition on this one. I believe they would have built society. It would have been the government would have been at the family level, fathers as the head of the household, building groups and moving towards their ultimate glorified state. That's pretty much what we see 
would have happened had the fall never taken place. But the fall did take place. Sin entered the world. That did not just corrupt humanity. All creation groans in the pains of childbirth. That's the book of Romans. Everything, all of creation was thrown out of order. The cosmos was thrown out of order. And so now there's these different types of evil. There's moral evil. We're sinful. We've inherited uh, an unrighteousness, in a sense, from Adam. Original sin, we're wrapped up in that, and we're born with a sinful default nature. It's not that we sin and therefore become sinners. It's that we're sinners. <laughs> we're born that way, and therefore we sin out of a heart that's corrupted because we've inherited that from Adam. Was that Romans 5? Adam's fall. Yeah. And so now, so now we got moral sin. But it's not just humanity that was thrown out of sync. All of creation was thrown out of sync. And so now we've got <laughs> all types of death coming from creation. Uh, snakes bite people <laughs> and kill them. Uh, tornadoes break branches and fall on people. There's all types of stuff. There's bugs that can cause death, yeah. right? None of this, all of that is in the world. The creation groans in the pains of childbirth because of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, until we as Christians uh, expand our understanding of sin and truly learn to lament and grieve over our contribution to that reality, that's a very Christian thing. It's very Christian to humble yourself and acknowledge and repent of your sin and lay your sinful nature before a holy God and say, I contribute to this. It's on me. It's no one else. I bring this and I stand before a holy God. Until Christians get there, their view of the gospel will always be truncated. Because if you've never experienced the blackness of death, the light of the gospel is very hard to really rejoice in because it almost seems like, well, what did I get saved from? I was a decent guy, and I added a little Jesus onto this. No. <laughs> we were corrupted through and through. All of us are sinners. No one is good. No, not one. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, and we could all take that ourselves. And so my point being this, when we look at something like a bomb exploding, there's this, well, honestly, I don't which one is this, moral evil or natural evil? Here's where it gets blurry, right? Uh, I, from the news reports I'm looking at in Beirut, it doesn't seem like this was intentional. Um, no, it but, doesn't seem like there was intentionality in but, hurting people. But neglect, sins of omission are still sins. Right. And actually, you know, I was just looking it up to make sure I had this. Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 says, When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof Great so birth. that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Okay, what's the principle? The principle is you know, put precautions in place so that people don't die. Right. And, you know, if you've got three, what, what was it? 300 tons of ammonium nitrate um, in your, uh, no, no, sorry. Three, 3,030 short tons, 27, 2,710 long tons of ammonium nitrate, um, which is equivalent to 1.2 kilotons of dynamite of TNT. You, you put up a parapet around that. You, you put up, defenses and precautions around that to make sure that it's contained so that what happened in Beirut doesn't happen. So right. that is still evil. That is still... And, and Joel, finish the verse. What does it say happens if you fail to do that and someone gets hurt? Oh, right. Well, you're considered, uh, you're considered, you, you bring blood guilt on your house. Yeah. 
Yeah, ne- negligence is not an excuse. You, right. No Christian, and this is God's law, so yes, it's Christian's moral code. We build parapets around a roof. This is why the, the movement right now to own wild cats, like people who have like tigers and like pumas in their backyard. Right. This is the this is not a Christian thing. <laughs> we, we, we are not we are not interested in putting our neighbors' lives at risk because we have these kind of, you know, janky cages where we're holding uh, man eaters in our back. Christians understand the difference between livestock and wild animals. Scripture, it's it's from scripture that we get that uh, distinction. So right. tigers would fall into the wild beasts category. Right, 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 right. There's an appropriate place for a zoo, and a backyard with a, a, a breaking chain link fence is not a place for a tiger. Why? Well, because of the parapet law in Deuteronomy 22. God, now, God's, God's very clear. If your negligence, yeah, we're not under the old covenant law though, but the principle, the principle is there. Right. Well, and you and I have some. Well, that'll be another world. Yeah. Thanks for the little wink. I know. I, I know. I know where you're going. I know. I know. We, that's a whole separate conversation. But in yeah. terms of uh, God's established justice, which does not change, watch me wink back to you, Joel. I'm just going to wink back to you. God's established justice. He is unchanging. Amen. His vision for our justice and how we are to live this out is consistent between both the old and the new covenant. We ought to have a high regard for making sure this type of stuff doesn't happen. Now, in the case of Beirut. It was total negligence is what it looks like. They were storing things. I mean, this this actually happened down in Texas not that long ago. I think a very similar event happened in Texas, not quite as large, but it was the same uh, chemical that was, I could be wrong on this, Joel. I think it was the same chemical that was being stored and there was a huge explosion that went off. They were well aware of the risk. And whether it was through negligence, whether it was through corruption, whatever caused it, they did nothing to, to mitigate the risk at the government level. And it brought about the death of a lot of people and the homelessness of hundreds of thousands. And I mean, it's just a terrible tragedy. Now, is that moral or natural evil? That's a very blurry line, isn't it? I mean, it seems like that's more on the scale of moral evil, even though they didn't do it intentionally. It wasn't an earthquake. Right. It was a man-made disaster. Right. Um, even though it was done accidentally. Well, and, and you know, Jesus doesn't specify which one he's talking about in the Tower of Siloam. Right. Was it shoddy craftsmanship? Was it an earthquake? Was it the shifting terrain, the tectonic plates, you know, below? Jesus doesn't say. Right. But that call is, the call is to examine your own hearts. The call in a, in a catastrophe like this is to examine your own heart and to ask yourself, what do I actually deserve? You know, because no one wants that. To, I mean, we just had a, a derecho or derecho. I don't even know how you pronounce it. The, the tornado you mentioned mm. ripped through Chicago. Man, I, I was passing through Portage Park and there is a huge tree. The tree was looked to be 50, 75 years old, something like that. I mean, it was it was torn in half, bent down. I've never seen that in the city of Chicago. It's it's really incredible. And, you know, you mentioned that one one person may have tragically lost uh, his or her life, it, it that's that's tragic, Rafe. The question is, what do we actually deserve? Mm. What the, sin and death feel like intruders into this world because they are. And until we recognize that sin and death are so bound up with our own souls that we deserve death because of our sin, we will not understand the salvation and the rescue that Jesus Christ offers us. Because you said that. At, and, and I, I think you said it well, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But now you finish that verse. What comes next? Uh, but the free gift of God. 
is salvation in Jesus Christ. I get that I get it, but the free gift is not eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes. And so so that's thank you for being on the spot. Come on, man! Didn't you? Oh, you didn't go to Awana when you were a kid, did you? <laughs> no, I didn't become um, a believer till I was about eighteen. Right, right, right. Um, we got to see about getting you into some kind of remedial Awana. I know. I need like a basic catechism. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I have one. I can send you one. I got it. I got. It. Um, so, so yeah, man. It, it's it's it doesn't make it. Here's the thing: it does not make light of what happened in Lebanon to say this should be a call to repentance. Right. Quite the opposite. Instead, it recognizes that those 300 precious souls that were lost mm. mattered. And and they matter because human lives matter. Mm. And, and they matter because your life matters. And what's going to happen to you when your life comes to an end? And it inevitably will. Are you thinking about that? Only a fool... Only a fool would ignore the bridge out sign and keep driving. Right. And yet each and every one of us is driving on a road right now with uh, with a humongous bridge out ahead sign that's now been posted all over the headlines because the explosion in Beirut is a great big bridge out sign. It says it's, it's, it's blaring to us. It's telling us just like their lives ended, your life is going to end too. Hmm. And the question is, are you prepared for what lies ahead. And the only possible way to be prepared for death is to get right with the one who gave you life. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're not right with him, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, if you're re- somehow relying on your own uh, good works, as if the God of the universe needs you to do good works in order to save yourself, like, yeah, you've been slapping God in the face your entire life, but don't worry, you went to church a couple of Sundays, so you're good, you know? Like, it's laughable. Right. And that's why Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus isn't being mean. He's offering them the only key to salvation. Repent. Turn to Jesus as Savior and Lord. He died for your sins. He rose. He He ascended to heaven and he now rules. And that means that this, the situation in Lebanon will be redeemed for good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this great passage and I'm preaching on this coming up Sunday. It's very relevant for this conversation. It says, uh, it begins by saying, do not be anxious about anything. Um, Let me read to you exactly. Matthew chapter six, just a few verses from this, super helpful for this conversation, but it gets at a a point that's so important. It says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. And then it finishes with these two verses, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That passage is about the Christian worldview that God is sovereign over all things. Joel, the Lord knows the day he's going to take you home, and he knows the day he's going to take me home. Amen. He has that day allotted. The Psalms tell us to number our days. And I used to have a seminary professor that used to actually keep a, a, a running clock. Every day he'd pull off one number on it or cross off one number and he'd count down the average lifespan. And each day he'd be like, well, I got 2,464 days left if I live an average lifespan. And each day. And the reason he did that was because the Christian worldview is such that we recognize that God has a moment where our life will end and we will meet our judgment. 
Yeah. And if we live under the Christian worldview, what that means is, is that we don't have to be anxious about what comes tomorrow. I'm telling you, if ever there was a time to be anxious, we're living in it, right? We're living in it. I mean, look at the world. Everything, everything's crazy right now. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know if schools are going to open. We don't know what violence is going to flare up on the streets. Just a couple of days ago in Chicago, there was more violence on the streets. We don't know what's going to happen uh, with surrounding the election in the end of the year. There's any number of things that there is to worry and fear about. And if you listen, listen to the pundits long enough, what you begin to do is adopt a worldview where you worry and fear about tomorrow. What could happen? What might happen? The Christian worldview is there is a sovereign God who is over all things. And the day he chooses to take you home as a follower of Christ, that will be a joyful day for you when you wake up on the other side of eternity. Though there will be mourning on this side for those who remain, I'm certain of it. But what happens is there's this um, handing over of the, the, key, the, the reins of control that we have to hold onto that says, I can trust the sovereign God who orchestrates my life. I can trust the sovereign God who has chosen that day. And if that's tomorrow, my God's good. I'm good. My soul is right with God. If, if that's in 50 years from now, my soul's good, right? And so the Christian has to live with uh, a freedom from anxiousness. If you find worry, and I think this is important, kind of pastoral last remark, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you. If you find yourself burdened by worry as a Christian, uh, you've got to ask what's causing that. If it is a deep-seated need for control, to control all the elements around you and to, to kind of navigate your own life and build your life according to your vision for it, uh, that is not Christian. The Christian is regularly releasing control over to God and saying, God, even through disaster, your sovereign hand is good. I can trust it and I will trust it. And uh, if ever there's a chance to think about that right now for the people of Lebanon, it's right now. Uh, and so, yeah, now is a good time for them, for us to be praying for church leaders, for Christians who are in that area uh, to be offering that hope, because I'm sure they're scratching their heads uh, in their lack of control right now. Absolutely, Rafe. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we 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 need to be praying. We need to be praying. We need to you know look look for ways we can help. We need to be lifting up, especially our brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's a strong Christian um, population in Lebanon, and uh, we need to pray for those gospel believing Bible preaching churches there to really be able to rebuild. Um, I, I, I've heard rumors that some of the churches there were miraculously protected. I don't wow. know of any hard data on that, but um, if they were, we can only imagine that God did that so that those churches could be places of refuge. Hmm. I mean, we've, Rafe, in our own country, we're seeing what happens when you close down churches for months at a time. Yeah. We're seeing the kind of unrest the kind of malaise, the kind of uh, disorientation. And level of depression that rises, level of suicide that rises, yeah. level of abuse that rises in homes. Yeah. yeah. So we need to be praying for the church in Lebanon, in Beirut, in the, the, the Mediterranean crescent there. And, and, you know, we need to be open for what the, what the Lord has for us in terms of serving. And for those of us who are ministers of the gospel here, stateside, or... Uh, you know, Rafe, we've got listeners really all over the world. So wherever you find yourself listening to this, God's got a particular way for you to minister right now. And he He is working in world events and he wants you and me, all of us, 
to draw on the headlines and draw people's attention back to Christ. Not in an opportunistic way, but in a in a way that values people's souls and the dignity of their existence because they're made in the image of God. And um, and look, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Yeah. And um, maybe events like this can serve as wake-up calls to those of us who are supposed to be out in the harvest to get out there because our time is short. Yeah. So, um, I don't know, man. Anything else? Can you see me right now? Yeah. All right. Well, I cannot see you. My computer's having a fun moment right now. No, I think we covered it, Joel. I think uh, it's been a good reminder for us. And I I have to say, I started by saying uh, moments like this should send the Christian into a reflective state. Uh, When you're confronted by death, there should be a very real reflection that takes place where you're reminded of the gospel. And so Christians need to tell themselves the gospel every week. They need to tell themselves every morning. They need to gather in churches where the gospel is being proclaimed because we have a tendency to forget it Mm -hmm. and a tendency to lean on earthly wisdom where we are filled with worry and fear. And our sovereign God is too good for us to remain in that. He's given us Christ. He's given us all we need. And so uh, this is a moment of reflection for the church uh, to pull in on Christ and to lean in 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 new, hopefully strengthened ways. All right, connect with the Think Institute by going to thethink.institute. Get all of our back catalog of podcast episodes by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. You know what? Get some great content from Pastor Rafe by going to rafechennery.com. And of course, you can find the Think Institute on all the social media. You know what? This is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. We sure hope you found something helpful. That's all we have for you today. So until next time. I hope it made you think.